0: On page one, you have the full outline of the book. It's not fleshed out in total. It's fleshed out in the parts that we've already gone through. We are ending the third section of the book on the washing effect in terms of cleansing. You remember the book of John has an outline that is like the outline of the physical tabernacle. So there's sort of this approach in it. Jesus is the tabernacle. He's the place where God dwells. And the book of John is teaching us about this dwelling of God with us and about this work of Christ where he is better than the priesthood of the old covenant. And so we've had the section in the beginning that talks about the making of the tabernacle in terms of the creation and also in terms of the human nature of Christ. Him entering into the creation and coming to his own people. We have the idea of the place of sacrifice for sins, the bronze altar that's there early on. And then we have the pool of water, the labor of water, this, this basin from which water for ceremonial cleansing can be done. And we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit to give people faith, to, to cleanse. And so we've talked about the difference between how you get right with God versus the growth in fruitfulness that is done by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't want to mix those two things, so we'll be looking at a review of the idea of how we are right with God, how we're justified. And so as we're in this section, we'll be looking at now in four, the table of showbread loaded with cakes and chalices. So there's this idea of feeding and giving drink And so water is a theme here, but it's not water in the same way that there's a theme earlier on. When we look at John chapter 2 and 3, the water is used symbolically to point to cleansing. And here, as we deal with water, it's used in terms of nourishment or drink, the satisfaction of thirst. And so we look at the idea of food and drink here, and these are major themes that will be dealt with in these chapters of 4 through 7. John chapter 6 is a famous passage about the eating of Christ's flesh and the drinking of his blood. And so we will, we will see that when we get to it um, in this context of talking about the nourishment that occurs. Now, I have on page 2 for you a reprinted um, Pastor Kaiser's uh, little diagram of the tabernacle. So you can see we've already passed through the entrance gate We have made a stop at the altar of burnt offerings, the bronze altar there. We have gone to the laver where there is this place for cleansing. And so we now, having entered the door of the sanctuary, we see now the table of the showbread, which again has the bread, the cakes for eating. And it has also chalices where there is wine. And so we look at that. This is where we are thinking about this, our place here today. As we are entering into and thinking about the tabernacle. Now remember we have. We're going to be introduced to another sign. Which we're not there yet. But in this section. a second sign occurs. And so that sign occurs in chapter 4. And we'll read about that in future weeks. But the healing of the official's son is the second sign. The first one we saw already was the turning of water into wine. And so we are between those. And so let's go to page three of your outline. So here's a review. We talked about this. I've reprinted for you stuff we've talked about. I'm not going to re- review what's on page three here, but I wanted to remind you of it. This is what we've already talked about. Page four we also already talked about, but I wanted to reprint it for you because it is so important and we have the answers there. And, and so now page five, I told you we would talk about this today. So before we talked about what is justification, we've talked about how justification is an act of God's grace, and we've talked about what is justifying faith. And so now we want to think about faith. How is faith used to justify us? Okay, so here's the answer this is from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God not because of those other graces which do always accompany it, or of good works that are the fruits of it, nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for his justification, but only as it is an instrument by which he receives and applies Christ and his righteousness. Now we talked about the different kinds of causes last time so that's on one of the other sheets and so if you want to review that do that and feel free to ask me questions later but when we look at this in the Westminster Larger Catechism question 73 the idea of the basis of justification is a very important idea the basis of justification is why are you counted as righteous who earned it where are the merits from who made the payment and so when we think about our justification, we have two elements that we need to be clear on. One is, how are we innocent? Remember, it's because Jesus Christ pays for our sins. So our guilt is removed because of his redeeming payment. Then how are we counted positively righteous? How is it that we're accepted in the sight of God as righteous? It's because he perfectly kept the law in every detail, for his whole life, and even obeyed a positive order by God to go and die. So he obeyed to the point of death. And so his perfect obedience, his active participation in fulfilling the law, his offering of himself is a meritorious work. And so the merits of Christ are the basis of, Of our justification. God says you're righteous not because you do it. He says you're righteous because Christ has removed your guilt by his blood payment and he has provided you with a righteousness that is not your own as a covering. So that's the basis. So what's imputed to us? What's counted to us? What gets transferred into our account? Is it being counted as righteous because some of our works were good? And those get counted to us? Is it the work of the Holy Spirit in us? Is it our faith? There's none of those things. The thing that's counted to us is Christ's righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. That's answer two that I've got down there. Three, what's not imputed? And it has a list of all this stuff to avoid confusion. It's not that we are getting a merit for faith. It's not that there's any new covenant obedience that's being counted to us that we've done. It's not the fruit of the Spirit And it's not anything else that's worked in us or done by us. Not worked in us or done by us. That's not what is credited to our account. That's not what God looks upon as the legal basis of counting us as righteous. So how is faith a cause of our justification? Well, it's not the merit. It's an instrument. It connects us. And again, we talked about the types of causes on a different page. So go back and review that to understand the difference of them. But the instrumental cause, in short, is that which connects us. It's that which connects us to what Christ did. So how is redemption accomplished? By the work of Christ to pay for our guilt and to provide for our righteousness. So Christ's work as our mediator, as our representative, accomplishes our salvation. How is it applied? The Holy Spirit gives us faith to apply the work of Christ to us. And so this is the way these things connect. And hopefully, based upon the past discussions that we've had on the earlier questions there, that is understandable. So page six. That was the last portion of the review on justification that I wanted to make sure that everybody had. And obviously, I've been emphasizing that doctrine. Why? Because it is the center of the gospel. It is the key doctrine. The doctrine of justification is the key doctrine of the gospel. And we need to get it right. If we don't get it right, we have a different gospel. The doctrine of justification is the heart of the gospel. So, page six. We're moving into this nourishing work. So, chapter three focused on God's cleansing us as opposed to this idea of just justification. There's the discussion of justification, being counted right, but there's also the, the cleansing work, the sanctifying work, the work to help us to become more morally mature and to be less tending towards evil. So that work. Now there's this idea of not only the beginning of that, But now this nourishing work that's ongoing is where we go in chapter 4. So, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now, At the end of chapter 3 there was this idea that Jesus and John are both baptizing people and there's this sort of simultaneous ministry that's happening. And in that simultaneous ministry there was this dual witness and John talked about his need to diminish and the need for Christ to increase. Now other people are taking note of the fact that Christ is increasing and doing more, being more recognized than John. And we're going to come into the fact that Jesus recognizes that John prepared the way. That was his ministry. The purpose of John the Baptist coming was to make straight the avenue so that the king could go down it and he wouldn't see the trash everywhere. Right? Make straight the way is not about like going and literally taking a crooked road and straightening it up. It's about cleaning it up. Right? So if somebody said, make straight the house, you would understand Guests coming over, let's clean this stuff up, get the Legos off the floor, pick up the micro machines. So, this idea of make straight the way, the straightening up of the avenue, cleaning up the street. And so, Christ is coming, and what's happening is he is set up to do well and for people to come to him. And that is happening, and people are taking note because of all the work of the prophets before, but John being sort of this last preparer before the king comes. Now, he departs to Galilee, and he needs to pass through Samaria. They're both up north. One of the reasons Galilee gets mocked by people is because it's so far north, and it's near Samaria. People go, I mean, they're basically Samaritans, right? Who's with me? And it's sort of like, some border town on the edge of California, and you're just like, they're basically Californians. And so this concern here, you know, you're worried that they're gonna say, hey, do it a little bit too much. Or well, there's something like that, you think they might as well be there. And so this idea that Galilee is influenced by Samaria is a part of the concern. So we came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sikar. You know, the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So when you're wearied, you know, typically you want something to drink. Going into the well makes sense. There's also a desire for food. His disciples are going and getting food. Let's remember what Samaria is. Samaria is a city... <laughs> that we see created after the split of the northern tribes from the southern tribes. So in the beginning of 1 Kings, what you have after the death of Solomon, you have the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, and the curse that was given by God during the time of David's reign, that there would be a split of the kingdom, is fulfilled. And so Rehoboam acts foolishly, provokes the people, And as a result, the northern tribes, the ten tribes, they split away. And really, initially, the the only tribe that's um, really loyal to him is Judah. The capital is in Benjamin. And so Benjamin is sort of retained against its own desire inside of the southern kingdom. And the Levites get split. And then what happens is, during this split, the northern tribes, Israel... Their king, Jeroboam, he institutes in 1 Kings chapter 12 a new priesthood, a new temple, new worship, new altars, new feast days, and all of these things are called sin. And in doing that, he pushes the Levites to become loyal to the southern kingdom because their priesthood is taken away. And so you end up with basically three tribes in the southern kingdom. Most of the Levites, Benjamin, and Judah. Now, the northern tribes, eventually, you have this pretty fast decline because of the sins of Jeroboam into not only worshipping the true God wrongly, but also even bringing in the worship of other gods. Idolatry begins with worshiping the true God wrongly, having lies about the true God, attributing things to God that are false, until you've disfigured Him to the point of no longer that being the true God, and it progresses into the worship of other gods. So this sin makes it so that Israel is filled with false worship of the true God and worship of false gods. And what God does is he causes the Assyrian Empire to come in and to defeat them and to enslave them and take them out of the land into an exile. And that army heads south to conquer Judah, and God rescues them. The story is amazing and fantastic, but it would take way too long. But it's amazing and fantastic, and you should read it. So go to first Kings and read what happens. I read Second Kings too, it's worth it. Now, eventually, when everybody's taken away, what happens is you end up with these multinational empires taking people, mixing them up, moving them around, and they bring people into the land that was Israel, the northern tribes, and lions and other curses start to harm the people there. And they go, How do we stop this? Let's figure out who were the gods of this land before, and let's worship those gods in the way that people used to worship them so that we can be protected from these lions and all these other problems. Let's stop the curses of this land so it doesn't swallow us up. So what you have is people taking some outward forms of this sort of northern tribe worship that was the Jeroboam-invented worship, and bringing it back and using the name of the true God associated with it. And so the Jews look at Samaria and they say this city and the places of the northern tribes, those zones have been polluted by false worship of the true God, false worship of false gods, and then a coming in and trying to sort of take the forms without the faith of this. And so this idea that there's this syncretistic mixing, this, this bringing in of a mixture of Bible doctrine and human doctrine, of pagan doctrine mixing with the Bible, of false worship and true worship, and all that coming in. So, so the Jews looked at Samaria and they thought, these guys are apostates and cultists. They are people who have fallen from the true religion, who have a historical connection and so therefore a covenant and they have extra cursing on them and they have a false religion that they are keeping now. And so the idea that they are people who are covenantally kicked out. So a woman of Samaria came to draw water. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Okay, so why, why the explanation? Why verse 8? For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Okay, ordinarily, imagine for a second that you have servants or children or people that are, that are under your authority in some way, and instead of asking them to do something for you, you ask somebody outside of your authority to do it. That would be presumptuous. And as opposed to using your own resources to provide for yourself, using somebody else's or depending upon them, especially giving it in sort of an imperative form, give me a drink. Do you see how that would be if you had your own resources, if you had your own people around and there wasn't some obvious reason, that would be sort of insulting. It would be something that would make you feel like, why, why do you think you can tell me to do this? And so Jesus asked for this drink He doesn't have. We're going to see later in the text. He doesn't have anything to draw water himself, and he doesn't have any of his people around. Okay, so so he's asking her because he couldn't get a drink otherwise. Verse nine. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, "How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans." So she is surprised. Why is she surprised? Again, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as apostates, people that had rejected the true faith, that were covenant breakers, that were excommunicated, and as cultists. So, Sort of like the worst of all possible combinations of stuff. So, if Jesus were saying, let's make a personal relationship, and I'd like to accept your hospitality, and I'd like to not talk to you about any of your sin, that would be compromise. That's not what's going on here. But in order to avoid the view of compromise with people who are covenant breakers, who are outside, who have been kicked out, sometimes people avoid things that are duties. So imagine this. Imagine there's somebody who's been excommunicated and you see them. Can you do business with them? Can you tell them the gospel? Yes, to both of those. You cannot go play ultimate frisbee. You cannot go hang out and just kind of relax. You cannot enter into casual enjoyment of things. You have to seek to bring them to repentance, or you can be doing business. But there is not sort of a, a casual interacting and pretending like everything's okay. So Jesus' action here is not a public action in the sense of being some action of his office. Right? He's, not, he's not saying, get me the water so I can use it for the diaconal ministry. Right? This is not it. It's for himself. And so this is a sort of commerce. But there's this idea, and we see this in our own culture, where people think, I'm so holy, I don't want to do business with these people I don't like. You can do business, you can do commerce, you can interact, you can deal with ordinary engagements for the performance of ordinary life duties with people even if they are covenant-breaking apostates and cultists. Jesus is not sitting here. At the same time he is not abandoning the idea of maintaining holiness of relationship and not just saying hello covenant-breaking apostate cultist let us hang out with one another and drink cool water and chat. This is not water cooler chatting about. The Lord Jesus Christ gives us an example very fast of how to deal with these things, and how to take the commerce opportunities and not let them stick around in the water cooler chat, but instead move them into a witness for the truth. There is a famous missionary <coughs> whose name I'm forgetting because I'm so learned. <laughs> and he talked about the idea that you use commerce in order to bring Christianity To people, and then that results in the building of civilization. So, you think about third world countries, countries that are collapsing, that don't have Christianity in them. Commerce creates opportunity to make it so people can go back and forth and make money. It's worth doing regardless of that other stuff. And while you're there, you're bringing Christianity, and bringing Christianity results in institutions that make commerce more reliable, and it makes it so that justice is more preserved and it makes it so that there's a church that's being present there to be an indigenous witness and it makes it so that you can afford to pay people as missionaries into those zones and so commerce brings Christianity brings civilization and that's sort of the three C's building process. Sometimes that gets mocked as colonialism. If that's colonialism let's make the best of it but if colonialism is instead oppressing people by taking arms to control them and conquer them unjustly, okay, well, let's not do that. Okay, the Bible does not teach imperialism. The Bible does teach commerce, brings Christianity, brings civilization. And sometimes that results in people who are unjust waging wars, and the just must sometimes defend themselves. It's also possible that the Christian side can commit wrongs in the process. Have you ever known any Christians that sinned? I have too what a shock and so it is possible for people to be real Christians and to sin and then God to still use that to bring about good so history is a combination of mess kind of like Samaria and so there's this process there and we need to recognize what's good what's bad try to label things properly so the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans verse 10 Jesus answered and said to her if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So she brings up the Jew-Samaritan distinction and he goes, I'm going for it. Perhaps if she had just said, here you go, here's the water. He might have then thanked her and used some other way of trying to bring in something about the Lord. Maybe he would have pronounced blessing. Maybe he would have said you have just blessed a prophet and if you have faith you'll get the reward of a prophet. Who knows what he would have said but this is what happened. He intelligently without fear consistently pushes forward a witness of the truth. So here he is finding an opportunity. How is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, notice he gives an answer that's intriguing. the, The hard part about getting a religious conversation to occur is that as soon as you assert something strongly that somebody understands that they don't like, if it happens really early, they just kind of ricochet off. Well, I don't want to hear this. So Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is an intriguing statement that connects to what's happening. The more you know the word of God, the more you are able to connect the word of God to what's happening right now. And the more you think about the law and how it applies to different situations, the more you can decisively act. And So if you can decisively act and quickly come up with something to say that relates to what's happening right now, you are way more likely to do things that are useful, to have fruitful conversations, and to have them go farther along. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So what's the gift of God? Well, the gift of God that he's talking about is faith in the word of God. We have the context of John 3, right? We're just talking about the work of regeneration and the idea that God is the one who gives faith. Then we have the idea of living water. We've been talking about the work of the Holy Spirit as a cleansing water. And now this water is being talked about again, but there's a shift off. As opposed to cleansing, now we're talking about the thirst-satisfying nourishment of water. So we're the, the, the author here, the Holy Spirit and the Apostle John, working together, the author here is taking us along by the hand to see an interconnectedness as he's giving us this tour the tabernacle verse 11 the woman said to him sir you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep where then do you get that living water now living water by the way is a phrase that means a few different things possibly the most common usage for living water would be running water so in other words like a river has water that's moving, living. I think you get the analogy, so I'm not going to explain it any further. So the idea of moving water. So sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? So, whether this water has, whether this well had running water, whether it was somehow flowing, whether it's just a well, but then there's also the idea of living water, or running water, someplace else. She's going, to look, the well is right here. We don't have any rivers around. What are you talking about? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And she thinks that's like a gotcha. <coughs> Jacob gave us this well. And you think you're better than Jacob? And he drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock. Okay? If they had a river, they wouldn't have dug a well. And it was good enough for him, it was good enough for his family, and it was good enough for his animals. Now, you don't give animals water from a well unless that's your only option. Why? Animals drink a lot of water, and wells, you have to pull the water up in buckets, take it to the animal for the animal to drink, or have the animal stick around at the well And you don't really want animals to be around where your water is for long periods of time, especially where the entrance to the water is. So you typically don't have them wait there. You move them away from there, which means you're pulling it up out of the well and transporting it to them. And animals drink a lot of water, especially labor animals. So it was good enough for Jacob. It was good enough for his house, his descendants. It was good enough for his livestock. So why do you think you have a better option? So, the source of the cleansing water is not the earth, right? It's, it's not from here. Where does it come from? Where does the kingdom of God come from? They come from heaven. Where does the testimony come from? It comes from heaven. The scriptures are from heaven. The church is from heaven. And this water, this cleansing water of the Holy Spirit, and this nourishing water of the Holy Spirit, it's from heaven. So, she is thinking about earthly sourcing. She's thinking about the supply chain rather well, mind you. If she were around it, probably higher. And so this idea that she is thinking about where these things come from, but she's not thinking about the source in terms of heavenly power, the work of the Holy Spirit. This water that he is talking about is supernatural and not natural. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So there are two types of water. There are two types of these satisfactions. Two types of desire. We all understand thirst. We all understand the desire to drink water to satisfy thirst. But what about a person who has all the water they need all the food they need, all the sex they want, all the leisure time they want, all of the luxury they want, all of the things that you want. What if you have all the pleasures that you want and the problem is that you become bored? What if you have all the power you want and you're still frustrated because you still aren't wise enough to make it all work? What if you have all the money you want? These are thirsts that we have naturally. These are cravings that we have. These are things that that we want to have. We want pleasure. We want money. We want power. We want to be able to drink things to satisfy thirst. And the only thing that will provide everlasting satisfaction is the living water. So the knowledge of God is the source of the satisfaction. The knowledge of God is the source of relieving the thirst. And it is something that when you have it, it makes it so that you have a continual flowing inside of you of something to satisfy desire to give you strength to give you life this is teaching about the work of sanctification in progress but it's also this idea of the perseverance of the saints that god gives you life and it's everlasting it will not go away and this everlasting life is a nourishing continual flow And if you have water springing up in your heart that is living, then, like Jesus, you could say, if you had asked me for water, I could have given it to you. When you have the knowledge of God, you can share it. You can take cups or buckets or bathtubs full and give it to others, and you don't have any less. In fact, what God does is he in order to meet the supply, turns the spigot on more. And you go, wow, I mean, I feel like that's been turned the whole way. I don't think it could be turned any further. And he goes, there are more. There are more turns. I can keep turning the spigot. I can do this all day. This is what God does. He goes, I can keep increasing the flow of the knowledge of God. The more you grow, the more you use it, the more you share it, the more God keeps turning the spigot. And you go, how far does this spigot turn? He goes, forever. It goes forever. This is a forever spigot. They're the best spigots. And the flow can keep increasing. And so, what is heaven? Heaven is us without bodies, waiting for the resurrection, receiving a continual flow of the knowledge of God, growing in joy, growing in satisfaction. The resurrected state, we get an even deeper satisfaction because now we're reunited with our bodies and we have this continual flow. There is no curse. There is that increase. And so what we see happening here, this flow of living water into your heart is the source from which the invasion force of heaven activates power into the world. The work of the Holy Spirit in you, by the word, causes you to have Holy Spirit powers and the ability to speak the words of the Holy Spirit and to be able to take them to other people and to use that to see them become a place where the water is flowing. And for those who are already flowing, you know what you can do? You can walk up to them and you can encourage them in the knowledge of God and just go, just wanted to increase the flow for you a little bit, and then walk away. So that work, you can bless people who are already believers, you can bless people who are not believers, the Holy Spirit causes that to turn on, and the Holy Spirit causes it to increase into everlasting life. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She continues to think about this in terms of the earthly. Okay, so think about this. You tell people the gospel and you talk to them about joy, how the gospel brings joy, and oftentimes they think, okay, this is going to result in earthly blessing. Now here's the deal. The gospel and the application of the law generally do... Result in earthly blessing. That's what the book of Proverbs says over and over again. If you don't believe me, just read it. Over and over again. First five books of the Bible says over and over again. Okay? Now, at the same time, Job is there in the Bible. You have seen it, you've heard about Job. You know it's there. So what happens sometimes? Persecution, suffering, temporal curse. That happens. And God gives strength so that we can withstand even that. He upholds us, and he blesses us through it. But some people who think this is all going to result in temporal blessing, the Job moment happens, and they run away. Because they didn't have faith in what God teaches. They believed that Jesus was some sort of magical thing that could give them temporal blessings, and they want Jesus for the temporal blessing. If you want Jesus... You will enjoy temporal blessings to whatever extent God gives them to you. If you want the temporal blessing and you think Jesus is a means to get it, even if you get the temporal blessings, they will be a curse. Sir, give me this water that I may come here no more, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. So, whether he had already been given, in his human nature, the supernatural knowledge that this woman didn't have a husband or not, he asked this. Now, if he didn't know that, it would have been appropriate for him to be like, okay, we're going to talk about this, let's talk about this, get your husband, let's talk about this at a household level. Now, there's some practical wisdom here. If a man of the house converts, overwhelmingly, the household starts to be discipled. And you see wives and children become Christian. just more frequent. Woman becomes converted, husband not. Overwhelmingly, the father ends up not. And overwhelmingly, the children either don't or are very weak. So there's a practical thing here where you want to engage with the husband before he's totally shut it down. There's also a chain of command thing here, which is, all right, we're going to talk about this. Let's bring in your husband since he's your covenantal head. And there's a propriety thing here. We've been talking, we're in a a place that's open to view. You know, we're at at the, the well here, but they've been talking alone for a while. So bringing in the husband here would be appropriate. She might have said, I'm unmarried, let me bring my father. She might have said, okay, let me get my husband. Instead she says, I have no husband. And so this is variously interpreted. And basically the idea that it seems like she's trying to see, Jesus seems interesting, he seems competent, he seems powerful, and... I would like to replace my current man with him. This is sort of the way that this is often interpreted. This desire to find a higher quality man. So Jesus immediately shuts that down, and he does this by a supernatural knowledge that's given to him. This this work of the Holy Spirit in the human nature of Jesus Christ. Obviously, Jesus in his divinity is all-knowing. But the Holy Spirit is the one that gives the supernatural revelation to the human nature of Christ. So Jesus said to her, You have said well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one, the man, whom you now have, is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. So what is he doing? He's reminding her of her dissatisfaction. She has five husbands. Failed marriages, maybe some of them ended in, you know, death. And she's currently cohabitating, fornicating. 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, typically people interpret this as, this woman's trying to avoid talking about her personal sins, and trying to use theological questions to escape that. Now, let's just assume that's true for a minute. Notice Jesus doesn't dodge. Notice Jesus doesn't dodge. He answers the theological question. Secondly, even if it is a dodge, it doesn't matter. Answer the theological question. Thirdly, you can always come back. You can always come back to the personal sin. But fourthly, we think theological and worship sins are not as big a deal as sexual sins, and that is wrong. The first table of the law, the first, second, third, fourth commandment, are more important than the last table, the second table of the law. The 5th through 10th commandments teach us how to love our neighbor. The 1st through 4th commandments teach us how to love God. And which is greater? Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. So which sin was a bigger deal? Her unfaithfulness and her sexual sin? Or her worshiping in idolatry as a Samaritan. Worshiping in idolatry as a Samaritan. So Jesus is not being tricked to go down a rabbit hole. He is not going down something that doesn't matter. He's not being taken off of the point Because he understood this earthly thing, she asks him heavenly questions. Okay, so remember in John 3, the idea that if you don't understand earthly things, how will you understand heavenly things? When we take the law into the world, it makes people see the wisdom of the people of God, and it makes it so that they will listen to the gospel. The law shows people their need. It shows people how to solve problems. It shows people that they don't have good counselors. It helps them to see that there are systematic, clear answers of what ought to be done, how things ought to be applied. And the gospel provides them with an answer to the problem of, I'm guilty. Now, this idea of how to worship We should engage on that with people who are claiming to be religious. We should be willing to talk about that broadly. But when people are obsessed with worldly things, what we want to do is to be able to use the law and show them how what they're doing is not satisfying. It will never be satisfying. And they need to realize that they need salvation from outside of themselves and from outside of this world. So now, Jesus answers, verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. So, he is saying, okay, the question you just asked me is about to be something that the difference between the two gets obliterated. The idea of where the physical temple is, is it in Samaria or is it in Jerusalem, is something that's about to be ended as a matter of concern. Why? Because it's going to be fulfilled and then the temple's fulfillment will be followed by the temple's destruction. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem... Worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Okay, notice this. Religion that is scriptureless, or religion that is mixed with or added to the scriptures, is superstition, it is not knowledge. We know what we worship. The Jews know what they worship. Why? Because they have the information from the scriptures. And so the scripture authority makes it so they know what they worship. This is very similar to when Paul says, "Hey, you've got this statue to the unknown god. I see that you are demon worshippers." And I guess translated as I see that you're superstitious or I see that you're very religious. The word is demon worshippers, okay? It's a fantastic Greek word delightfully insulting Especially because he's talking to philosophers who mock the pagans for being demon worshippers. They actually use the word that he says to them in Acts to mock those who worship idols. And so he is using a mocking, insulting word. And if your translation says very religious, that translation is removing the punch. Okay. So Jesus is doing something similar here. He's saying, we worship what we know, you worship what you don't know. Because salvation's from the Jews. Because salvation's from the Jews. Who gets the scriptures, the Jews? Who has the proper worship, the Jews? Where does the Messiah come from, the Jews? This is a man-selected mountain with a man-designed temple, with a man-designed altar, with a man-made priesthood, with man-made feasts, with man-made ceremonies. In Jerusalem, they had the mountain selected by God, with the temple designed by God, with worship ordinances given by God, with a priesthood initiated by God. It is very important that we worship in the way that God has appointed and that we not be superstitious in bringing in false worship. This is a time of change of the outward order. So he goes on. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, God's seeking of those to worship him who are like that. He doesn't find it there. He doesn't go, there's one with integrity. Here's one with faith generated by the virtue of their own soul. Here's another one who's so good, just dancing around, skipping through fields with goodness springing out of his soul. He looks for it, and he wouldn't find any of it, except because he wants to find it. He puts it there. He gives faith. He puts the knowledge of himself in people by regeneration, which we studied in chapter 3, by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the new birth. And the time was coming, and it was now then, during the days of Messiah that the old temple system was being removed and the new covenant worship, which is not focused on a particular mountain with a particular temple, but instead has a temple that fills the earth. That worship of the spirit of God is done in spirit and truth. We must worship him in spirit and truth. So I want to give you three possible interpretations of that. Look at 21, 22, and 23. We're going to stop right after this. Spirit and truth can be kind of interpreted in really four ways, but one of them is is humanistic and absurd. Let me tell you what that one is real fast. Imagine the word spirit is little s and the word truth is little t. They are both referring to a human being in their own spirit worshiping according to their own conscience whether it's informed by scripture or not well just because you think it's right doesn't make it right you shouldn't go against conscience but you shouldn't do something just because you feel good about it the question is do the scriptures teach it so here are three interpretations all of which mean exactly the same thing, but are different ways of saying it. And which commentary you read, you will see them switched around. So, 21. Spirit, big S, and truth. Little t. The idea here is we must worship God by the teaching of the Holy Spirit with integrity, according to what we think is true. That would be, the Holy Spirit reveals it in the scriptures, it's brought to us and we with integrity seek to apply. It. The other one, lowercase spirit, big case truth. We, in our spirits with integrity must seek to apply the scriptures. Okay, so that'd be with faith using what the scriptures say. Here's the third one. We, big S spirit, must worship God with The Holy Spirit revealing and empowering us according to the scripture. Okay, so first of all, yes. Yes to that one. But the other two are the same. Okay? The idea that we worship by the power of the Holy Spirit with integrity, okay? The Holy Spirit doesn't empower us to, with integrity, commit idolatry. The idea that we with integrity, the little s spirit and the big T truth, with integrity apply the scripture if you're applying the scripture with integrity guess what you're going to be out of faith worshiping the god in the way the true god in the way that he has commanded the third one by the power of the holy spirit according to the scriptures means the same as those other two so whichever of those you go with this text is teaching us that we need to worship god by the power of the holy spirit in the way that the scriptures teach. So that is what this text is saying. And that's going to happen not just on the mountain in Jerusalem, but that's going to happen throughout the world. And God, the Father, is seeking to have ones throughout the world to do that throughout the world. And so he is going to bring the elect to himself, and he is going to empower them to worship properly, And he is going to cause them to gather to worship him properly throughout the world. He is doing that work. It is being done. So that is the teaching on worship that Jesus gives there. And we see that this powerfully goes forth into more. And we'll talk about that later. Comments and questions and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.